I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is You Can't Make This Up. You Can't Make This Up is the podcast where we uncover the true stories behind your favorite Netflix documentaries and films. On today's episode, we take a closer look at the Netflix documentary series, American Manhunt, the Boston Marathon bombing. After those photos were released to the public, it was clear that they were flushed out, that they were known, and they seemed to be in a mood of, we have nothing to lose. Today, we're talking to director Floyd Russ. In the confusion after two explosions at the marathon finish line, two bombers slip away with the panicked crowd into the streets of Boston. It leaves investigators with hundreds of victims injured, a trampled crime scene, and no good leads. Surveillance video captures the unknown suspects, but local and federal officials disagree on whether to release the images or keep them under wraps. When they realize the cops are onto them, the Sarnayev brothers extend their deadly crime spree in an attempt to escape. After a week of terror, the entire city shuts down to bring the bombers to justice. American Manhunt, the Boston Marathon bombing, brings us the stories of the victims at the finish line, the investigators who pursued the culprits, and the patrolmen who engaged the fugitives in a deadly firefight in a quiet neighborhood. Our suspects are on the run right now and they're hurling more bombs at Watertown police officers in Watertown, Massachusetts. And as soon as I heard that, I said, holy shit. And I'm joined now by director Floyd Russ. Floyd, welcome to You Can't Make This Up. Thank you for having me. Good morning. So we know that two bombs were placed near the finish line of the Boston Marathon in 2013. And that's where most of the media coverage was taking place at that point and where a mass of spectators were gathered. Can you set the scene there at the moments before the explosions happened? Yeah, um, Patriot's Day is something that people aren't familiar with in most of America, right? I mean, I lived in California most of my life. I, I spent a good chunk in New York. And even when I lived in New York, I never heard of it. But Patriot's Day is not just Marathon Monday. It's a day where the Red Sox are playing. It's a holiday in Massachusetts. Um, so all of Boston is off. And most people uh, gravitate to the marathon. Um, and of course, they end up largely at the finish line. So you're talking tens of thousands of people um, spread out over the course of the entire marathon, but most of them are near that finish line and they're barbecuing, celebrating. Some people are drinking um, and some people are just there to support the runners. Uh, there's fundraising. I mean, it's really a, a holiday for everybody in Massachusetts and of course in Boston. Now, you can't tell the story of um, the Boston Marathon bombings without ex examining the bombing itself. And we see that moment a couple of times. And it's from sometimes the vantage point where the explosions are heard, but not in the frame. Um, every time that we are exposed to it, it seems to be in service of the story. And I'm wondering how you thought about trying to find that balance of, you know, showing the viewers the attack in the documentary. We, I think we all remember, um, you know, if, if we were at least near our adolescence during this time, where we were when this happened. But all of these different angles and sounds that we, you know, sourced, and it took a huge team of people to find not only what was already out there, but also to see if there's anything that people haven't submitted yet. So a lot of this is, you know, cell phone videos, the um, surveillance footage that was used in the trial, of course, that were submitted. 
And at the end of the day, you know, we don't want to re-traumatize the audience or anybody by, by showing this too much. The point is to show it as it happened um, so people can, you know, remember what it is and then to show it from an analytical point of how the police had to reanalyze the footage. And kind of that's the same approach for us in terms of finding as much footage as we could, because that's the same process that the FBI and the Boston PD had to go through. Of course, they had to find all these angles to see if there was a new piece of evidence in them. I'm really curious because one of the investigators did say they had to go over over a thousand hours of video. Um, how many hours of video did you have to comb through as, as you were making I'm, this documentary? I mean, it's definitely thousands of hours totally. You know, I'm lucky, of course, there's a huge team that works on this. Um, archivalists, assistant editors, editors, and me, and we're all looking at this footage together. Um, so we split it up just like the FBI, so to say that we have a team of people looking at it. But, you know, we are fortunate in the sense that, like, it's coming through channels to us as well. It's it's something that, like, is filtered, so to say. Yeah. I do think about the person that had to look at the video, and especially even one video, over and over looking for evidence. They don't just look at it one time like we do. They look at it for tens of hours, frame by frame. And can you imagine doing that, like, the day after that happened? I mean, that that in itself is incredibly traumatizing. So I'm thinking about two very important scenes that you show. One is the bombing and the other is the police shooting at MIT. And you let those roll with no narration. And, you know, it's dramatic, but it's also, you know, I think brings you really a sense of what happened without adding drama. Is that what you intended when you handled it that way? Yeah, we wanted to, you know, the, the major events here, if there is archival footage where you can just show what happened unfiltered that for me as a filmmaker, that's always the strongest thing to do that. You don't put a point of view on it. You just show what happened. Sometimes of course there is no archival footage. So having a first person account um, from an officer or, you know, a survivor or victim that was there is just as powerful. Um, vice versa. When we show that uh, shooting at MIT, we then want to understand what happened after that, just like the police, you know, we don't have a first person account. So we're with the cops and the FBI to discover kind of what happened, so to say. And the manhunt kind of continues throughout that, throughout, you know, the five days, because new things are constantly happening where you don't understand why this is happening. You do have a series of incredible interviews in your series. And one of the people you interview was police supervisor, Billy Evans. I was in the Boston police for 38 years. I learned a lot of lessons. But the most important thing was, if people want to hurt people, they'll find ways to do it. Um, you also talked to some victims and some people who were there, and I'm wondering about your interactions with those spectators and with victims who were injured. What were those conversations like? Specifically to recall, and you know, I was really fortunate that Karen um, McKibben shared her story with us. Her story... Um, is so multi-layered in the sense of, you know, she lost a dear friend, she was injured, her family couldn't find her. There was a, um, a mistaken identity factor to trying to find her after the bombing because there was just so much chaos. I remember waking up on the sidewalk. There was a horrendous smell. My ears were ringing so bad and that I couldn't really hear. At that point, it was just chaos. She really had never shared her story uh, with anybody, you know, and I think it, it took that long because closure has been a theme and, and it's been now 10 years. And to, to finally get her story in a documentary like this is a great gift, I think, to the entire world. 
because it embodies, you know, how, how we could hopefully move forward from, from an event like this. Um, but I, you know, there's no way that just one person can embody all of those stories. Like to me, she's a symbol for that, but of course every person deals with trauma individually. Um, and like, you know, our goal is never to re-traumatize people. So we're really happy that she came forward and, and wanted to share her story. So the clock begins on the manhunt, obviously, almost as soon as the bombings take place. But a bombing isn't like another kind of crime scene. You know, it includes wounded spectators that have to be taken out, barricades in the way, hundreds of people running through the area. They don't know if the bomber is among the victims, obviously. There are concerns about yet other devices that may target first responders. What Were there concerns right away that evidence might be lost in all of this chaos? Oh, absolutely. I mean... I think uh, when the FBI arrived, uh, you know, literally what they said in the in the documentary is that um, evidence was just trampled and kicked everywhere. And, you know, it comes in so many layers before you even just decide what is a piece of evidence. You have to consider, is there another bomb even? So the threat of another bomb was the first issue that they had to rule out. Um, and, and, you know, to go back to Billy, who ran that marathon, um, I think his reaction to when he hears that there was a an explosion at the marathon and he goes, that's impossible. I was just there, you know, and that event of happiness that he was, he was just there 30 minutes before, you know, and I think that's kind of how it hit everybody in the sense of like, you know, we we're looking at images of happiness and like, there's no kind of thought that this destruction of, of happiness could happen in an instant like that. Um, and how does the, how does the police go into processing an event like that? You know, they don't have the luxury of, of, uh, taking a step back and having a moment of emotion, like they need to act right away. So of course, you know, the process of evidence versus what's a bomb, like they, they have to act right away and they have to separate the, the shock trauma of it. So authorities do spot the movements of men with two backpacks. They initially call them white hat and black hat. And there's this real disagreement between the FBI and the Boston police on whether to release the images and seek the public's help. Is it fair to say that this decision ended up shaping the entire manhunt? A hundred percent. I mean, you know, to, to, to talk about like a domino effect of what happened is almost um, not fair because when you stack up dominoes, you know which way they're going to fall. But to me, I always think of it like imagine an, an ocean of dominoes. And when you tip one over, you have no idea which one's going to fall next. Right. But they knew that they had to tip that first domino because they they didn't have any more leads. They were at a, you know, they were at a dead end. So the release of the photos to me is that first domino, you know, also to say your, your first chess move, so to say. I see it largely as it's the only chess move that the that law enforcement made and it put everything in motion. You know, it, um, it put the entire manhunt in motion. It put the bombers in motion, literally. Um, and that is what led to, you know, the events at MIT, perhaps, and at Watertown. And I think that's why it's so interesting that we're talking, we're taking this point of view through law enforcement, because the entire manhunt wasn't something that, uh, you know, is, like I said, a single road domino. It's a totally ripple effect where you don't know what's going to happen. It's not an exact science. Um, but the releasing of the photos was everything for sure. Now, one thing that I didn't realize was that the release of the photos to the public was preceded by a leak of the photos to the media, and they actually got out ahead of that. And you asked Police Commissioner Ed Davis, who had been on the side of releasing the photos, if he was the source of the leaked photos. Frankly, I was relieved that that was going to happen. I would never do such a thing in an investigation like that. I have no idea how these things got leaked. I have two-part question. One, was it uncomfortable to ask him that question? And 
you thought it was important, this is my second part, uh, to get him on the record with his response, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, to me, you know, this is not just a manhunt for finding who did the bombing. Of course, that's that's the biggest thing. They want to find these guys and stop them. But it's also a manhunt of why they did it. So it's a manhunt for motive, right? We need to understand why this happened. If we can understand the motive, hopefully we can, you know, stop this from happening again. So when I speak to law enforcement, it's the same way. It's the same thing. When you're making a decision, why are you making that decision? Um, if this photo was leaked, who has a motive to leak it? You know, it could have been for, for financial gains that some officer decided he doesn't get paid enough and just did it. You know, we don't know that. Uh, but we do know that Ed Davis wanted to release the photos. He's the person, the only person that wanted to release them out of, you know, the, uh, so to say, leadership personnel. Um, so I had to ask him that question, you know, because I was uh, I wanted to know how he responded. Of course, he, you know, I don't believe he he leaked it. I believe he answered truthfully that he did not leak it. He would never do such a thing. Um, but it's important to get him on the record because I do also believe the audience otherwise might, you know, uh, be uh, another backseat detective and thinking, oh, maybe Ed did it. So we let Ed answer that question to dispel anybody who might think that. We've seen in so many TV shows and movies this like territoriality that develops between the police and FBI when you investigation like this. Were you expecting it to be this territorial when you started making this documentary? Because I was actually very surprised at sort of deep divisions between thinking, uh, you know, the ways of thinking between these two agencies. You know, I, I go I personally go two ways on that where I, I think. It's, it's also a good thing in the sense that people have different jobs and they look at things in different ways and we need different points of view to make the best decision. You know, if everybody just thinks the same way, you're, you're, it's not good. You know, it's not, you're not going to get the best well-rounded decision, so to say. And that's what's so interesting about, you know, the difference between FBI was coming at something in, in terms of a national point of view. And then of course, the Boston PD, Billy and Ed, you can tell just by their accents, even they're going to have a sense of pride and connection to Boston, you know, that the FBI doesn't have necessarily, or it's different. So that local pride is a good and bad thing, of course, you know, it makes them stay up, you know, 16 more hours and work around the clock. But also what can happen when you're exhausted, you can make bad decisions. So you need that, you know, balance, so to say. And that, to me, I don't even see it as division. I just see it as Law enforcement is not an exact science is what I, what I always like to say. And it's them trying to just make the best decision together. And if you, if you don't disagree, sometimes, um, you're not, you're not being truthful. I would say, I always, this is, I don't want to talk about myself, but like, you know, I realized that I want to marry my wife when I realized, Hey, we can have an argument and we can get through that. You know, mm -hmm. if, if you don't get through conflict with somebody that you love or somebody that you need to do something unsurmountable, something you've never done before in, in a case that is like, unlike any other case, then, you know, if you can't get past those differences, you can't work with that person either. So law enforcement releasing the photos obviously did, um, you know, get the brothers in action and get them to get on the move. And I've never understood why they went to MIT or killed Officer Sean Collier. Do you have any understanding of that? It's interesting because I do believe the, audi the audience has the power to kind of decide what exactly happened after the photo release. And, and as Ed says, you know, we don't know for sure that they were set into motion because of the release. A lot of people believe so. You know, I think when you watch it, you can make your own decision. But for me, if they acted a couple hours after the release of the photos, 
you know, and, and then went to MIT, apparently tried to steal an officer's gun. Um, MIT, you have to keep in mind, is very close to where they lived. So it's not like, why are they at MIT? Are they students? No, they, they go to a university police officer to try to steal his gun. They have one gun at this point, but they wanted a second gun. And that is, you know, the conclusion of that event, so to say, of why it happened. It, you know, we could say that sounds ridiculous. Why would you try to steal a cop's gun? Why do you need another gun? You know, you already have a gun. Um, that's what they decided to do. You know, I can't speak for um, what, what decisions these bombers are making and why they would, would make them. I don't think any of us can. But, you know, that was the conclusion is that they were trying to steal yeah. the, co- the officer's gun. Didn't escape my notice either that they had a car full of explosives and explosive devices as they were, you know, mm-hmm. doing this because they had to move them all then into the other car. So they probably had other plans. I, I think to me, you know, when you look at the first uh, three, four days of, of before the, the release of the photos and, and you know, sort of say the quiet before the storm. Um, and once those photos are released, the next 24 hours that I mean, as a filmmaker and even as a human being, like that is a puzzle that was so hard to figure out. And even to this day, you know, I think there's decisions that were made by the bombers that you can't understand. They're making these bizarre decisions, driving in circles. And, you know, they want to go to New York to conduct another bombing, but they're driving in circles between Watertown and Boston. And it's like, why, what's going on here? And honestly, I think that part of the puzzle has led to like, you know, theories and conspiracy theories even, but none of those have been proven. So, you know, we we focus on what we what we know and what we can prove in in the show. So it's not even clear at first that that, you know, the MIT incident was connected to the marathon bombing. But then not too far away, the Sarnayev brothers carjacked Danny Meng's car with him inside. If Tamerlan Sarnayev hadn't told Danny that they were the marathon bombers, I found myself wondering, would investigators been able to have made that connection? Because he basically gave himself up to this carjack victim. Yeah. The amateur level, you could say, of the bombers shows a lot in those 24 hours. They're not professional robbers. They don't know how to steal a gun. They're not hi- they, don't, they don't know how to hijack a car. Um, so they're doing everything kind of like an amateur word. They're, they're revealing their identities. They're saying what they did the day before, um, you know, and, and luckily Danny, uh, you know, a college educated, smart, ambitious, like wholehearted human being was very strategic and processed that information, didn't panic and, you know, took the chance he could when he ran. And I want to say, you know, saved so many people in that moment because he didn't panic the second he heard that news. He could have ran. They could have shot him. He would be dead. They take the car. Cops still can't link what happened at MIT and some guy being shot on the side of the road. I mean, this is Boston. There's millions of people there. Every night, there's thousands of crimes, right? Cops don't just say, oh, well, this must be connected. They can't do that. They can't jump to conclusions. There's a process to everything. You would never catch somebody that fast normally. You need somebody like Danny, you know, to, so to say, step up and, and give the evidence to police because otherwise it would take too long to gather and process it. So you do show the footage of Danny's escape and 911 call. And there's this incredible moment where Danny gets into the store and is like begging the store owner for help, like literally. What was your reaction the first time you saw that footage? It is an incredibly suspenseful uh, piece of real film. Yeah. To me, you know, a, a good documentary has two things. Um, it has 
the people who went through these events who are willing to open their mind and heart to you in the interview process. But then, of course, it, it has archival footage that is irreplaceable, you know, and that footage is stronger than any, you know, Hollywood movie or recreation could ever be like to see Danny run across that street with total holy, I'm going to cut, sorry, fucking shit. Like okay. I am going to die. I'm running for my life here, you know, and then bend down on his knees and beg the stranger to make a phone call. Like you see, you, even in blurry security footage, you feel it. You really feel it, you know? And on top of that, you know, when I saw that, I was like, holy shit, like this is to me the turning point of the entire manhunt is that piece of video. And then I also went by those gas stations myself when I was in Boston and people go to those gas stations every day. I mean, you guys probably know where they are. They're, they're on the main, you know, um, road or with a beautiful view across the river. But when I was standing in that corner, I was and I was just seeing, you know, literally watch like I could see Danny run across the street while I was standing on the corner. And I was just like the context of such a place and what happened at this place, you know, it's almost as powerful as what happened at the finish line, you could say, because um, what Danny did right there by running across that that road is like he saved a lot of people. I really believe that. What was it like for Danny to watch that footage again? <sighs> I mean, you know. I know I showed Danny that footage and I asked him, of course, first, if he wanted to see it, you know, um, he was hesitant, but he, he agreed to it. I didn't push him into it or anything like that. I would never do that. It feel like the longest two hours in my life. It still feel terrible. Like every time I think about it, that's like the most difficult decision you have, have ever made. To be honest with you, Danny was somebody that like he wasn't sure he wanted to be interviewed at first. You know, it's for him, it's very traumatizing, of course, to talk about this. Uh, very different from Karen. You know, he agreed in the sense of like his story is important and the and the role that he played in capturing these guys is really important in the sense that he's a really everyday American hero, you know, and he's Chinese. He's a Chinese immigrant, you know, and this largely is a story of immigration, you know, gone right and gone wrong, you could say. But to me, when he when he watched that, you know, and he, he was he didn't say anything. The only thing he said was that, like, I, you know, I can hear the tremble in my voice, you know. And I think for him, when he sees that, it, like, it, it must put him directly back into that, that moment. It's something that he'll never live without. So, yeah, I mean, it was just a very simple, quiet moment. But I think for him, you know, he agreed to go back to that headspace um, for us. So, that, you know, watching it puts him back into that, like, very, very vulnerable moment that he was willing to share with us. It's incredible that he remembered the number of his GPS and that he tied that to his pride in being able to buy the car, which is part of his immigrant story. It is like an unbelievable piece of the narrative. I can't remember my passwords to anything. I have to save them in my browser. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, it, you know, it's, 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 it's really a truly an extraordinary moment in the story. Um, of course, this does lead to a showdown on a street in Watertown. And I'm wondering, you spoke to the police officers who were there for that. I could see him throwing something. And I saw it coming through the air. And when it was coming through the air, I'm like, this kid's throwing sticks at us. And when it hit the ground, it went ting, 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 and I went. Their adrenaline seems to kick in as they are telling you that story of what happened that night. They seem to really be, you know, as they're doing the TikTok, remembering it in the moment. Did you notice that when you were interviewing them? Did it feel that way? That's that energy in the room? Yeah, I mean, 
when we're when we're telling this story, and it's really important, you know, for people to know that this is a minute by minute recounting of what happened, you know, during the manhunt. But then we also go back into the backstories of, you know, everybody who played an important role, the officers, Danny Mang, and we even try to explain, you know, who these bombers were, why would they have done such a thing? Our Watertown police officers, the two that we interviewed, John and Jeff, um, two really, you know, lovely guys with a, with a huge heart that have so much love for their community. They have a very, very detailed accounting of exactly what happened for two reasons. You are going through something where your adrenaline, I think, is so high that you're making decisions so fast that every little thing is important. But on top of that, these guys are officers. What do officers do? They have to write down a detailed report of exactly what happened. And so much happened during this that they were dealing with the writing of this report for days. I mean, this is a piece of, of memory, you know, that they, they are all about exactly what happened because any wrong step, of course, is, you know, is on them. And what I always remember about John is like, you know, he's never fired his gun. And he's been an officer for, you know, 20 years or so in Watertown. That was the first night he's ever fired his gun, you know, and it, and it was a, a shootout with hundreds of bullets flying. So, yeah, yeah. And that, that really struck me because I remember the criticism of the police after that confrontation. They used a tremendous amount of firepower. I remember them saying that, you know, the Sarnayevs were throwing bombs. They had to be stopped at all costs. And, you know, that was a little bit of a controversy. But to just shoot and shoot and shoot, 210 shots from police alone. This is no bullshit, man. You put innocent lives in danger. I interviewed a man whose child was almost killed. The baby was sleeping in the room where a bullet came within inches of uh, the baby's head. Is that where you come down on it? Because, like, maybe they did have to be stopped at all costs because these didn't seem like cops who typically like to fire their guns all the time at everything. Yeah, I mean... Um, you know, just like what we're talking about, the answer to that question is also two-sided. And, and what we try to present is an argument to every side, because then the audience can decide for themselves what they believe. And I, I think, you know, that's what makes a good documentary to hear from both sides. One side I agree with, you know, there's too many rounds fired mm-hmm. um, by by officers who perhaps shouldn't have been there. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a it was a two sided confrontation. So officers were shooting into each other, which is highly dangerous. Nobody wants that. But that reflects the chaos of the situation. And then, of course, as soon as uh, somebody gets out of the car and starts firing at an officer, you know, they're going to start firing back. When somebody throws a bomb on a pedestrian residential neighborhood street, at that point, you're in a situation where these officers haven't been trained for the situation, you know, right. and you could say, well, there should be training and blah, 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 blah. It's like, yeah, well, now there is. But you're talking about an unprecedented situation. You know, for me personally, I remember when this happened on day four. I think most of us were asleep on the East Coast because it happened so late. Um, this happened like after midnight. But when you woke up the next day or if you were still up and you heard this breaking news, it was just like it was one of those like, are you like even Jeff says it, one of the cops, are you freaking kidding me? Like this can't be real. It it seemed like it was a mistake when you heard that news story. Um, And the more you found out about it, you were like, oh my God, like it's it's not, it's not only real, but it's getting worse and worse. So Jahar Tsarnaev escaped and his older brother Tamerlan was killed in the confrontation. And it wasn't until they ran his fingerprints that they learned his name, but the FBI already had known who he was. And I'm wondering if you have a sense of how high on their radar he had been. Um, Is there any chance that the FBI could have thwarted this attack in any way? Was he high on their radar? Was he just on some sort of low priority watch list? Do you have any sense of that? 
Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, I don't want to give it all away, but I guess here we go. <laughs> um, you know, like I said before, this is a story that the more you find out, the more you're like, you know, you're, you're, there's another twist and turn. There's another like, holy shit moment. I didn't see that coming. And when they scan his prints, the only way to have his prints in the database means he's, he's either ha has committed a previous crime or he was on some kind of watch list or some kind of thing. And he does pop up in the FBI, you know, database because they had him um, on, a on, a, on a guardian screening, it's called, several years before because of the Russian FSB giving them a tip that this person is somebody that they should watch. Um, the tip ended up being looked into and they decided that it's a false tip. The FSB apparently does that a lot, who knows? But in that sense too, hindsight's always twenty twenty, And you could say, well, they had a tip. Why couldn't they have done something and stopped them at that point already? This bombing would have never happened. Of course you can say that. But, you know, we asked the FBI, we looked into this, actually, I did research um, beyond even the people that we interviewed and to everything we found, they said, you know, they did due process and they did not find anything at that time. You know, so that so they said the tip from the FSB was false. But if that person ended up committing a bombing several years later, you know, you could say there's no way that tip is false. Right. Mm. Can you talk about the decision to shut down the entire city of Boston oh, and suburbs, the lockdown? That decision was controversial. And actually, I didn't realize that President Obama had feelings about it. Um, just that decision, like, just talk about it because it was it was strange at the moment. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting decision in the sense of like, when we look at it now, 10 years later, it feels like we can analyze it, especially knowing what happened all those days before and putting it together like an ABC that where everything makes sense, right? But at the same time, I do think about it like imagine that day, you know, you, you have a bombing that has killed four people in total over the last five days, a bombing that's injured, you know, hundreds of people. Now you've had a shootout on a residential street. And I think at this point, you don't really know what's happening. You don't know if it's just two people. Right. And that's why they shut down the city. Sure, they think, okay, this one person's hiding somewhere in Watertown, but what if there is another person? You know, what if there's another person with bombs? So they decide to shut down the city because they need to control the situation beyond the control they have. In a way, it might show that they don't have control, right? The, the law enforcement doesn't have control and they're trying to get control. And at the, on the other hand, it's true. If you shut down an entire city, what does that show in terms of like, is terrorism winning? You know, how scared is an entire metropolitan and even an entire country now? Like we've never seen this before, that an entire gigantic city is shut down. Um, and in that sense, you know, I think uh, the call from Obama that they got is, they gave them a few hours to see what this would lead to. But after a while, um, what, you know, the call from Obama saying that, like, you can't keep an entire metropolitan shut down. It's, some, it's not only important in terms of, you know, what it does to a city, but it's also symbolic to an entire country in the world in terms of like, what, you know, are, are we letting terrorism shut us down, so to say? Yeah. Right. So, of course, Jahar was hiding in a boat in somebody's backyard, a boat where a resident yeah. called in that tip as well. Uh, Billy Evans, who was about to go home once again, is called back out. He has this tactic plan where he wants to keep things very, very quiet. And that is obviously not what ends up happening. And he has feelings about that. Yeah. Everyone's diving for the ground. You know, I didn't know who fired first. All I know is I had to get the fire stopped before he killed the individual in the boat. Billy is on the mic, screaming at everybody. Hold your fire, hold your fire. Everyone hold their fire, hold their fire. 
All units, hold your fire. Hold your fire. Everybody hold till we have the tactical here. All right? That turns into quite the scene. The crane ripping off, you know, the bearcat ripping off the cover of the boat, the smoke bombs being thrown in the boat, the flashbangs, the officers who show up who aren't supposed to be there, who start firing. Billy Evans is not happy about how some of that played out. Um, what accounts for that, especially given what had happened before with this, the scene with Tamerlan? I, I, before I answer that question, I want to rewind, just if you don't mind, to the to, I find this one of the most astonishing facts of the entire manhunt is that, you know, you just mentioned the lockdown. We have to talk about, you know, there was about there was about 2,500 officers in Watertown doing a house to house search. Yep. Knocking on doors, asking to look in garages, you know. Um, they can't just go into people's houses, of course. It's not like they have warrants, so they're asking places. But then somebody calls uh, from one block from where the car was abandoned that Jahar drove away in, one block away in Watertown, and says there's blood in a, in a boat in his backyard, and there's someone in his boat. So let, So I just want to start this entire conversation with, we just shut down the city. There's 2,500 officers that are going house to house for eight, eight to 10 hours now. But it still took a resident one block away to call about blood on a boat. And it seems like a very small contained thing at first because you, you have the upper hand now, right? You have somebody calling, an officer arrives. The fact that it's Billy, the guy who run the marathon, in the very beginning now as one of the first people at this boat, like... This is like, you cannot write this if you were writing a movie. This is unbelievable. He's one of the first people there. He's trying to control the situation. And now the 2,500 officers who are there end up being a problem because yeah. it's too many officers. Um, and they are scared and they don't know what they're doing and communication isn't clear enough. Um, some of them know what they're doing. But control, so to say, is an issue at this point. And it leads to another shootout. A dangerous shootout, of course. And they're lucky nobody was hurt. So when Johar is finally taken into custody, there's this contrasting scene that that you juxtapose that I, as a viewer, really appreciated. People flood the streets to cheer the cops. Many are waving American flags. You know, they're not just spectators and they're not just saying Boston's strong. They're, they're doing this very like pro-American patriotic display. And then you make a point to discuss this despair felt by Boston area Muslims over what terror attacks would mean to their community. That's a really poignant and important, I think, thing to show back to back. And I'm wondering, interviewing those Muslim leaders today, the people in the community today, if they still feel that despair. Yeah, that's something we introduce um, right away in, in the first episode, of course, after the bombings, because a lot of the Muslim community, when anything happens, including you know shootings, um, especially a bombing like this back then, um, they immediately go almost into like a hiding point of like, oh, my God, they are so scared of the post 9-11 fallout of what, what's going to happen now. Are they going to point the finger at the Muslim community? So we, you know, we went to um, the imam and a friend of Jahar's to kind of give us that angle. They're both Muslim, of course, to talk about what it was like for them in real time from the bombing throughout the manhunt. Um, and then, of course, discovering that, you know, oh, my God, the person they're actually looking for is somebody that I know, somebody that I that I consider my best friend, somebody that goes to my mosque. Um, that, you know, there's a lot of duality in that situation because you feel for the Muslim community. It's not, you know, an act of a community we're talking about here. This is an act of individuals um, who did, you know, a horrible thing that's never going to be forgivable. 
But you want to understand that, you know, how culture and society reacts as this. And, and we are made up in, in like so many different facets. So I thought it was really important to show how the Muslim community um, and being and, and how it affects being Muslim, so to say, seeing this happen. So there's obviously still a lot of questions about why, you know, Tamerlan ended up uh, sort of bringing his brother into this. Tamerlan's backstory, I don't want to get too much into. There's a lot there to unpack. And law enforcement obviously has still not unpacked all of it, I don't think. But one of the lasting debates still also is whether, if not for the influence of his older brother, Jahar would have been a participant. I'm just curious as to whether or not making this documentary has informed your take on that or not. You know, I, I don't think it's an it's an answer that I could fully um, supply, sadly, in the sense that, you know, we wrote to Jahar, of course, um, he's in Supermax in Colorado, so no interviews or contact is allowed with anybody. We, we tried a lot of different methods. So, you know, the best we have is the accounts of the people that knew him. Of course, his brother is dead, the older brother, Tamerlan. So his account, nobody knows. So all we have is really Jahar's account and the attorneys and defense attorneys supplied that in the trial, what somebody tells you when they're trying to convince you that they're innocent is one thing, you know, um, all the other evidence we show. Um, if there's any gray area in this for anybody, I think when they watch the documentary, they'll be able to, to make up their own mind. Um, so I don't really want to stain that with my own opinion. So, you know, we're never going to hear from Jahar, probably. Tamerlan is dead. Where does that leave the many people affected by what happened at the marathon at MIT in Watertown? Do they feel the story is over? Do they feel this chapter has been closed? I don't think there's a way to close the entire chapter of an event like this. It's a piece of history. Uh, it's something that we never want to see happen again. Um, and that's exactly why, you know, I personally wanted to tell the story 10 years later, because I think it's been long enough now to process and think about this in a way that we can talk about closure, at least. But closure doesn't mean moving on. Closure means processing something so that you're able to perhaps live with it in a way that you're still able to have a positive life. Um, and that's going to be different for everybody. That's going to be different for Karen, who was at that finish line and lost the leg. It's going to be different for some for a teacher of Jahar's. It's going to be different for a reporter. It's going to be different for somebody who, you know, may have a, a different experience with a different act of terrorism or, or you know, lost a loved one in a different event. Um, but to me, I think, you know, when you watch this, uh, we wanted to paint a holistic view from very different points of view that have direct contact with the event, law enforcement, victims, survivors, you know, everyday American heroes. Um, and it really shows the duality of the society that we live in. You know, there's so much good, but they can also be bad. And, and it's a very fragile thing that, you know, if we work together, I think I think we can keep it together. Well, the series is called American Manhunt, the Boston Marathon bombing. It's fascinating. Director Floyd Russ, thank you so much for joining us on You Can't Make This Up. Thank you guys so much. It's been awesome. That's it for this week's episode. Thanks again to Director Floyd Russ. For more of my takes, check out my other podcast, Crime Writers On. Each week on that show, we break down the latest in true crime documentaries, films, podcasts, and pop culture. If you like You Can't Make This Up, please rate and review this show and share it with your friends. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. And make sure to subscribe to the show to stay tuned for all new episodes. Our music is by Kelly Mack at Netflix Music Lab. You Can't Make This Up is a production of Netflix. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. Thanks so much for listening. 